The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, and a very special welcome to our live listeners today as we are broadcasting and recording the 47th installment of Faith and Practice. This is our monthly segment that we took a summer sabbatical, our monthly segment with Dr. Joseph A. Piper, where we answer your questions. We have a a selection of excellent questions submitted by our listeners today, but before we dive into them, uh, I want to invite Dr. Piper to open us with a word of prayer and then also share some announcements about the life of the seminary. Dr. Piper. Our Father in heaven, we bless you. Praise your holy name, Lord, for indeed you are great and there's none like you. We thank you that you're our God and Redeemer. Lord, we thank you that uh, uh, your spirit indwells us to teach us um, your word, its truth, to unite our hearts more fully to you and our affections. We always want to study your word in that manner, Lord. Uh, We thank you for the privilege of serving here at the seminary and serving the broader church through means like this. We ask that you will uh, bless the Faith and Practice podcast today and indeed give us wisdom and insight and make it profitable to our hearers. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. To any new listeners to the podcast, I want to welcome you and thank you for tuning in. Greenville Seminary is committed to equipping preachers, pastors, and churchmen for Christ's kingdom. That's what the school has been doing and the faculty have been doing here since 1987, and that is our laser focus. Right now, the seminary is abuzz with activity. We've welcomed 25 new students this semester, which is, um, I think— a record, or at least a a high point for us. 17 of those new students are in residence, and then the the remaining uh, eight are studying with us by distance. Today, right after our podcast, we have our first senior sermon of the year with Mr. Stephen Spinnenweber up from Jacksonville, Florida, to preach in chapel, and we're excited for that. So these are some things to be praying for as you think of the seminary, for our welcoming these new students into our midst, for our prospective student day that's coming next week on September 18th and 19th, and for the other activity that we have going on. Dr. Piper, do you have anything to add? Zach, if any prospective students or people that are maybe even possibly thinking about seminary or hearing uh, the broadcast, it'd be well worth their while to uh, come up next week for the Explore uh, conference. These are always profitable times, and we offer uh, our prospective students, if you come to one of these occasions and then you enroll, uh, we deduct your travel expenses off your first semester, first semester's tuition and fees. So it's a good opportunity to be in classes, meet professors and students, uh, as you consider seminary, or even the possibility of seminary. If you can't make it next week, we do this every fall and spring, and so we will have it again in March. Please contact us and a member of our admissions team, either me or somebody else from the admissions team, uh, would love to, to give you more details. So diving into our questions, we're going to start with Caleb Shea of St. Paul, Minnesota. And Caleb asks this, I am currently trying to work through the arguments for and against two kingdoms theology. It seems to me that an underlying concern on both sides is the political freedom or restriction that each view implies. To cut right to this matter, in your view, can a Christian be a libertarian when it comes to moral law issues? What is your principle for deciding what the government should and should not enforce? Even non-2K theologians do not want the government to enforce all aspects of the moral law, especially the first table. Thank you, Caleb. This is a a complex issue, uh, but let me say that the two basic principles of disagreement are not with respect to what the civil sphere does— but what is the role of Christ as mediatorial king is the most important issue. And the Westminster Confession position, the non-quote 2K position, is that Christ as mediatorial king uh, reigns over every area of life, uh, and uh, it is to be governed uh, uh, by him. Uh, And so that then as Christians go into their various spheres, uh, they want to apply biblical principles and... Uh, serve Christ their King in those spheres. The second is what we would agree that the 
role of the church is the, is the spirituality of the church. So the church's role is to uh, a preach for the gathering and perfecting of the elect, and through the church, Christ then governs his people in that particular uh, saving manner. So uh, that that's a big difference. Uh, so uh, we would believe that Christ's word does apply to all of life and that there are things like Christian worldviews with respect to education or um, government, and that would be denied by 2K uh, people. As to the application of uh, the moral law, um, there would be differences with respect to government. But let me say this, that uh, the moral law was given... Uh, to Adam in the garden before the fall is written on the hearts of men. So all the Ten Commandments are binding on all people and all going to be judged whether or not they uh, uh, worshipped or served God or believed in God according to his holy law. The Sabbath, for example, is not a Christian ordinance per se. It is a creation ordinance. Marriage is a creation ordinance. So when 2K people uh, will say, well, it doesn't matter whether somebody as a homosexual marriage, and I don't know, it does matter greatly because this is a creation ordinance as to the destruction of um, people who would be involved otherwise. As to the application, I happen to believe that uh, uh, in those days when all of the Ten Commandments were the basis of a criminal code, that was good. Now, I'm not saying the sanctions, but in terms of a morality, you, you either have uh, laws based upon uh, human whim, or you have laws based upon God's moral law. Now, murder is wrong because God says it's wrong, not because of some social compact. Property rights are correct, not because of social contract, but because of God's moral law. Uh, would it be wrong to have a society uh, that uh, said that, uh, well, I was raised in a society that held the blue laws, that stores, restaurants should not open on the Lord's Day? Uh, I think that's great. You're not forcing people to worship, but you are uh, honoring God's law. So it's a bit more complex than that. As to libertarianism, I do agree um, with those that will say libertarianism is contrary to Scripture. Uh, God's moral law is to govern us in our relationships, and so I don't like a live-let-live live attitude when it comes to civil government. It'll get me in a lot of trouble today. Well, we we came into the podcast gangbusters, that's for sure, with, with that question. Now, there there is such a thing as a, a Christian libertarianism, is there not, Dr. Piper, where where the government is leaning leaning toward more liberty than than, well, than prescription. I, see, I wouldn't call it libertarianism. I believe in little and less government is best. So I think that the government in its sphere should uh keep to its areas of responsibility as laid out in Scripture and not interfere in the family, not interfere in uh, uh, so many issues where the government is, is today. But I would not want to call that Christian libertarianism. I would call that what I think is an application of biblical principles that uh, in its sphere, government is given responsibilities. Education is not one of those responsibilities, nor is family. Those are spheres. I encourage people to read uh, Kuyper's Sphere of Sovereignty. I agree with what Dr. Smith said a number of years ago. That's the best approach by far to how Christians ought to be behaving and what the government ought to be doing. You can pick up the little book lectures he gave at Westminster Seminary called the Stone or at Princeton. Princeton. At Princeton. Uh, called the Stone Lectures, and he addresses a number of, of issues then. Those are Lectures on Calvinism by Abraham Kuyper. That, that book was a watershed uh, book for me when I read it when I was first reform, um, first exposed to the Reformed faith. Of course, you were in political studies too, so that was, was very timely for you. Yes, and I read Christianity and Liberalism by Machen as well, where he really rails against government involvement in education. Um, anyway, moving on. Thank you, Caleb, for that question. Our next question comes from Matt Jones of Missoula, Montana, and he asks, my question comes from a recent conversation with a friend. He was commenting that he saw many recent posts on Facebook that John Calvin, Matthew Henry, and many others believe that Michael in the Bible was actually Jesus. What do you know about this? I did some research, but I would appreciate any light you could shed on the subject. Thank you, Matt. I have not read that myself in Calvin or Matthew Henry. I know that there have been those that have thought uh, that Michael 
was uh, Jesus. But I think that's a mistake. He's clearly called an, uh, an archangel. Uh, he is, uh, his name means messenger of God. Uh, but uh, there's, as best I can tell, no revelation that would really confirm the fact that Michael was a pre-incarnate uh, form of Christ. In the Old Testament, the pre-incarnate form of Christ was always called the angel of Jehovah or the angel of God. And I would, I'd stick by that. I, will, I had hoped to go and look at the sections in Calvin and Matthew Henry and uh, uh, did not do so. Matt, I'll do that, Lord willing, and if I need to change uh, what I've said about them, I will do so as well. And Matt, if you would like to send us the citations, if, if there are any, to, um, yeah. in the works of Calvin or Henry, you might save Dr. Piper a little bit of time on uh, on his investigation. Well, the name's only mentioned about two times in the Bible, so it won't take a lot of time. <laughs> oh, yeah, at least in the commentaries, that's right. So our next question comes from Bill Duncan of Conway, South Carolina. How does the post-millennial position equate the return of Christ to a time in which none can know but yet look for a future worldwide revival prior to then? I am unsure and fluctuate between amill and postmill. The main question I can't get my head around is how to pray Maranatha petitions rightly. I, I like the practical concern here. Yes, Bill. Thank you very much. Hope things. Imagine when you hear my podcast, you might be having to evacuate down there at Conway, with the hurricane headed straight toward Myrtle Beach. Um, I think both amill and postmill have some difficulty uh, here uh, uh, with this in certain schemes. Um, the kind of post-mill that uh, I and many of us here would hold to is there's going to be an age of great gospel revival and reformation, and that there seems to be a time of apostasy. Um, you know, in terms of the parameters of those two occasions, outside of the conversion of the Jews um, and worldwide belief in Christ, we don't really put dates on there. We don't know how long the apostasy would be. It might be very brief. It might be a um, long period of declension and maybe then another awakening before Christ comes. So there's always a tension uh, in any, uh, any position, uh, I think, outside of uh, some positions that are less biblical, in terms of uh, the imminent return of Christ. One thing to realize is, is that Christ is going to return for each one of us in our own death. And so uh, part of that is I know that I need to be living as if today is my last day that I shall appear before Christ. Now, that's very practical. And uh, Calvin's motto, quorum Deo, heart before God. Uh, that's important. Uh, as to the, uh, the Maranatha passages, um, there are commentators that take those as that Christ would come there between uh, under the Jewish and Roman persecution and deliver the church. I, I tend that direction. I don't think that—I mean, I think there's um, glimpses because of the organic nature of prophecy with, with multi-ranged fulfillment. And so—but I think that uh, the persecuted church also is pleading for Christ to come as judge and vindicator. So we find the saints under the altar uh, doing that as well. So again, uh, we should be praying that today, both for the return of Christ at the end of the age, but also for the vindication of the persecuted church around the world. Thank you for the question, Bill. And you know, God, God bless you in the midst of Hurricane Florence, which is bearing down right now on the coastlines of South and North Carolina. We have many friends down in the Low Country who have evacuated, and some even up here to Greenville. Well, so, they will come. They have to evacuate today at noon. Yeah, so it's not coming until Thursday afternoon. Well, the rains have started. Well, rains always start, but the real yeah. bad part yeah. will come Thursday the afternoon. Landfalls Thursday. Our next question comes from Timothy James Hammonds of Dallas, Texas. In a recent discussion of the Sabbath, the argument was made that the Sabbath was the person of Christ and no longer a day. The one making the argument wasn't clear as to how he got to that position, and I've never heard it before. One response was that even if Christ is the Sabbath, which on one level he would be, this would not abrogate our need to keep the day holy, just as since he is the bread, we still need to eat the bread in communion. Thoughts? Thanks, to, uh, Timothy. I hope you and Heidi are doing well in Dallas. I've gotten through your more recent uh, trials, and God's blessing you there in the church. 
I've not heard that one either. I, I would find it very specious. I don't think in any way the Bible ever thinks of Christ as the Sabbath. He introduced um, the Sabbath rest. So in Hebrews 4, um, uh, he has accomplished the Sabbath rest uh, for the church, but then we are exhorted in verse 11 to enter into that rest. And in 9 and 10 then, because he's accomplished the rest and we are exhorted to enter into the rest, then the writer has that parenthesis, there remains therefore a Sabbath keeping for the people of God. And in fact, I think in verse 10, I follow John Owen, he bases that Sabbath keeping uh, day now on the first day of the week because that was the day of Christ's uh, resurrection. So yes, Christ has fulfilled the, has ushered in rest. Come unto me all ye that labor and are weary and I will give you rest. We are resting in Christ we're looking forward to our eternal rest in Christ, and that's why we have a Sabbath. So uh, I, I think that we keep the Sabbath because he has laid the foundation of the rest, and we must persevere. Thank you, Timothy, for asking a question in Dr. Piper's wheelhouse. Uh, I hope that answer <laughs> suffices and even helps you in that discussion with your friend. Our next question comes from Eric McIntyre of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. In my city, we have tragic strings of murders every summer. In a discussion with a church leader, I pondered on solutions for our neighborhoods that the church can offer, including but not limited to activities or programs for young people, efforts to mediate peace between territorial disputes, like gang disputes, etc. Apart from outreach, I talked about the necessity of strengthening families and empowering men to lead families and communities. His response was basically that until systematic or systemic injustice is resolved, nothing will change. This church leader, to me, sounds hopeless. What are your thoughts? Are there any noteworthy church-led or based efforts to bring reconciliation and peace to a community? I acknowledge that, yes, we must preach the gospel, but then what implications of the gospel inform how we engage the extremely broken areas around us? And are there any historical examples we can glean from? Whew, Eric. Well, you have uh, really touched on uh, quite a timely topic and quite a controversial topic in the church uh, today. This gets back to, uh, in part, what I was referring to in Two Kingdoms. We need to distinguish between what churches do and what Christians do, A. So the church should be organized as a parish in our communities, and the church should be uh, actively involved uh, as much as possible as communities uh, with the gospel uh, and with diaconal uh, uh, structure uh, and, and aid in these places. Now, Christians often, and it's commendable, move into these communities as well where their church is. Now, so we have the church's role, which needs to be, and I don't think, I don't think you mean to, but, you know, when you say uh, I acknowledge that, yes, we must preach the gospel. What implications does that inform? Well, if we're really preaching the whole counsel of God, we are then discipling the people uh, in the parish. So if they come to Christ, we then are teaching them a biblical lifestyle, uh, how to be fathers and mothers, what the home is like, how to manage money, and to be Christian stewards, and how to, to live. That then, uh, if these people, particularly men, are converted, that is going to become the catalyst uh, for change as Christians then begin to work out of uh, their faith, work out their faith uh, in the community. And Christians then can organize uh, attempts to, uh, for reconciliation. Uh, I know that when they had the shooting in Charleston, year and a half, two years ago, that uh, many pastors were involved in a meeting for reconciliation. They weren't involved there as their churches. They were involved there as Christian um, leaders uh, to pray, to confess, and to pray uh, for a, a reconciliation. Now, in terms of this business that until we solve the systemic problem of injustice, that's not the church's job. I don't think that where that's coming from. People may think it is. The only way that we solve systemic injustice is by the gospel. 
plus, many of these people are wrongly defining systemic injustice. And so uh, we've had all these discussions lately, but it's the gospel uh, and the church as the Lebanon society that's going to uh, solve injustice. So I think that we're there as a church that is commendable. I think that Christians move into the parish, um, that also uh, is, uh, is commendable. Those families then exercising hospitality. Uh, we lived in a uh, um, city in Philadelphia, uh, in a, a place in the city in Philadelphia. Uh, the, at the end of our street was a savings and loan that got robbed so many times it finally shuttered its doors. Um, so we know what it was like, and, and great majority of our neighbors um, were African-American, and we really enjoyed living there. And not as a, uh, well, I wasn't pastoring either, but as a Christian, I was involved in the neighborhood with block parties, with uh, various uh, types of things that, that we would do. Um, and we'd have people in our home and do things with their children. So I think that's the, um, uh, the better route to protect the, the, what the confession refers or teaches is the spirituality of the church. So in the confession, in the chapter on the church, the church's work is for the gathering, perfecting of the saints, and Christ has given her everything she needs to accomplish that purpose. You know, Eric, you know I grew up in Upper Darby, and I think we've spoken about this somewhat, but the Presbyterian way of doing church, how Christ governs his church through courts— through the General Assembly and then presbyteries and then the local congregation, uh, can really help churches that are in these difficult areas, like my sending church in Upper Darby, um, by mustering resources from other churches in presbytery that just have a little bit a little bit more on hand. Because I used to I was fond of saying this to other pastors in my presbytery. You know, $50 in Upper Darby goes as far as $500 in, you name one of the, 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 the more um, socioeconomically well-off suburbs around Philadelphia where their churches were located. So the, just to highlight, the ministry opportunities there are huge. And what these churches in urban areas really struggle with is gathering the necessary resources to be able to engage with the community. And we see this example, to get to the last part of your question, are there any historical examples that we can glean from? We see this in uh, Antebellum Charleston, in the work of John Lafayette Giroudot, and the cooperation between the handful of churches that were there in downtown Charleston, discipling different segments of the population. Right, and he patterned that on what Chalmers did in, in the uh, uh, inner city areas of Glasgow. Uh, I mean, uh, yeah, Glasgow and Scotland. So uh, we do have, and there's a good bit available now on Chalmers in terms of how to develop a church parish and minister to your, to your community. Now, of course, there needs to be proper oversight of any of any funds that are going to be shared between churches um, and, and all that kind of thing. But what I love about—one of the things I love about Presbyterianism is our connectionalism and the opportunities that affords us to do ministry together in these difficult areas. So thank you for the question, Eric. That is very timely in light of the recent statements that have been made in uh, Reformed Evangelicalism and Calvinistic Evangelicalism and some of the debates that are going on now. I hope, I hope our answers are helpful. Our next question comes from Isaac Overton of Geelong, Victoria, in Australia, and he asks, 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 11 instructs us not to associate with professing Christians if they are immoral, not even to eat with such a one. What would obeying this command look like in the church today? That's 1 Corinthians 5, 9. Good. Isaac, I hope your um, internship vicariate is, is going well uh, for you down there. Uh, that's traditionally been understood as excommunication, and uh, what he means by that, as I would understand it, is that people in the church are to have no uh, broad social uh, contract, a contact with the person that's been excommunicated. This is not the shunning of some of the Anabaptist groups. It's not that his family uh, would no longer. So let's say a situation where. Uh, the f- husband and father was excommunicated. The wife would still have her uh, godly wife functions. The children should still submit to his authority in, in the home. Uh, but those broader in the church community 
would not have him over for a birthday party or to come over and watch a, a football game. Now, there would be those that would say this merely means that he's not to come to the Lord's table uh, and not to eat with him. But I do think it's broader, although you do want them at church. And so one of the things with the excommunicants is that we, we want you under the word. And if, you, if people in church meet such a one, they're kind. They say, I hope you're well. We're praying for you, and we really would like to see you, you know, at church and under the word. And we'd really like to see you repent. So that's how I would understand that. Our next question comes from James Martin of Rock Hill, South Carolina. This question was instigated by a tongue-in-cheek post that I made on Facebook with Van Til's visage and, uh, and a statement that inadvertently seemed to downplay the role of evidences in presuppositional apologetics. But this is a good question to handle as it deals with the Reformed tradition and with uh, Vantillianism in particular. In his commentary on Acts 17, Calvin says that Paul appeals to nature to combat falsehoods, quote, natural arguments, and quote, proofs from nature. Calvin later says the sayings of the poets, Paul quotes in Acts 17, 28, quote, came from no other fountain save only from nature and common reason, end quote. He also says, quote, Furthermore, because he hath to deal with profane men, he draweth proofs from nature itself, for in vain should he have cited testimonies of Scripture, end quote, regarding Acts 17.24. From the perspective of a Vantillian presuppositional apologetic, is Calvin wrong, or are you able to reconcile these statements with Van Til saying we should appeal only or ultimately to Scripture? The question's probably a bit anachronistic in that the overall discussion of of, of proofs as it was laid out by Van Til is not a context in which Calvin would have been thinking and writing. I always start with Calvin's view with respect to uh, who God is and Scripture. And Calvin begins in the Institutes by saying, by natural uh, law, but by that he means written on the heart of man and in creation and providence, every man knows there's a God. So Calvin never begins... Uh, trying to prove to a person that there is, uh, that God is. Uh, he asserts that God is, and he then looks to Scripture to reveal the true God. With respect to the self-authenticating nature of the Word of God, Calvin never felt compelled to uh, prove from natural arguments that the Bible was the Word of God, resort to archaeology or something like that. He, very similar, in fact, the language in the Westminster Confession of Faith basically comes from all of the Calvin and then later uh, uh, Reformed uh, theologians to such extent that the high and reverent esteem of the Scripture and the heaviness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, etc., um, many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection. There are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God, yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. This was Calvin's position as well. Use the word. Uh, my uh, dear friend who's now with the Lord, uh, John Kirstner, would say you've got to prove the word before you can use the word, but that's not what Calvin or the Confession uh, would say. Uh, as to these uh, natural proofs, once you've assumed with the person, challenged them, you know there's a God, and you're, you're willing to use Scripture not because you think they believe it, because it is self-authenticating, uh, then it is not uh, improper to uh, make uh, appeals to uh kind of subsidiary arguments. And so, yes, Paul asserts biblical truth, and so he will, he'll talk about uh, uh, creation, the God who made the world and all things in it. So he's beginning with Genesis 1, not beginning with, with uh, their athe uh, evolutionary view of origins or anything else. He deals with the spirituality of God. Uh, he does not dwell in temples made with hands. He's not served in human hands. Um, he made from one man, Adam, the one man made. These, this is, these are all biblical uh, arguments. In him we live and move and have our being. Uh, and then he wisely quotes one of their poets. Now, when Calvin would use, uh, or Paul would use, 
or later Calvin or others, a, a uh, uninspired source, it was never to, to uh, introduce a new argument. It was always to uh, fortify the arguments that are on the table. I think it's very important to keep in mind. I was thinking, as we're going to be question, in fact, uh, what the Confession of Faith says, chapter 1, paragraph 3, about the Apocrypha, those non-inspired books that the Roman Church puts between the Old and New Testaments. The books commonly called Apocrypha, not being of divine inspiration, are no part of the canon of the Scripture, and therefore are of no authority in the Church of God, nor to be any otherwise approved or made use of than other human writings. So you will find at times that New Testament writers will make a reference to the Apocrypha, but only because it is a confirmation of an argument that they have stated. So I think that the general tenor of Calvin and the Westminster Standard would be what is called presuppositional at these very basic points of the self-authenticating nature of of Scripture and that all men know there is a God and are responsible to him. But to say something like Calvin was a Vantillian is anachronistic. Yeah. You just can't do that. But you can say properly that he's presuppositional. Right. And so he Vantill is developing then the the approach that Calvin employed. Yes. You could and fairly the, say and the that. standards. Yes. I think that there's more recently, um, and I understand— at least I think I understand where it's coming from. There's a bit of a hostility against Van Til and Voss among uh, the community of of Reformed Christians who rightly want to do more work in retrieving um, material out of the Reformed tradition pre-19th century. And um, we need to be careful about drawing anachronistic comparisons. Right. For well, the sake and of taking cheap shots. I love the Reformed uh, scholastics, and I don't find any uh, tension uh, between the great majority of truths that uh, they uh, taught and what was taught by Voss or by, by Van Til. Now, I think that some of the tension is developed on the presuppositional side with kind of a wholesale dismissal of Reformed scholasticism, or even a man like Thomas Aquinas, who's one of the most quoted sources in the Institutes. Are, uh, in the early church. So uh, we, we could, as young, I'm not young, as Calvinist, we could profit from having a greater knowledge of the better medieval theologians and of the early church. Uh, our next question comes from Cindy Fernandez of Los Alamos, New Mexico. Hi, Cindy. She asks, Dr. Piper, why do you believe that we should raise our hands for the benediction? Is there biblical warrant for this? Hi, Cindy. I'm looking forward to being with you all in a week and a half out there in Los Alamos. Really excited about seeing you all and, and being uh, being with you. Appreciate the question. These things often go on in our churches, and and many people, I know you know the answer, but many people assume these are just traditions as we do. The, uh, the biblical uh, warrant... Uh, comes uh, from uh, Aaron's benediction uh, in number six, where he's told to invoke the name of God on the sons of Israel. And uh, the priest would do that by the lifting of, of their hands. That's the natural form of a blessing. And we see it many places then in, uh, in the Scripture of a blessing communicated in that way. So if we understand what the benediction is, um, then we can see the relationship of lifting of hands and a blessing and lifting of the hands and benediction. It's not a prayer. Uh, it's not a wish. It is, in fact, a blessing conferred by God on the people. And so the minister lifts his hands as you would lift your hands and other types of blessings to uh, communicate uh, through uh, posture uh, what it is that God himself uh, is uh, doing in, in this act. And we, and we believe that it is God that is communicating uh, the blessing. That's why the blessing is to only be given by a minister of the gospel who's ordained to the gospel, uh, 
because he is the spokesman for God in this uh, in this place. So we do um, believe it's biblical to lift hands in blessing. I don't get into then, you know, is it one hand, two hands, uh, three fingers, uh, a victory sign or whatever. I, I just think the out, outward-facing palm with both hands lifted is the best posture to demonstrate that a blessing is being poured out uh, by God on the people. So it's, in a sense, the inference. God uh, is lifting his countenance up on us. We're invoking the name of God on the sons of Israel, and God says, I bless them. And so we then um, use this posture that's used in other uh, communication of blessings in the scripture. Thank you for the question, Cindy. And for anyone who's interested in receiving more of Dr. Piper's insight and wisdom on Reformed worship and posture and, and the role that, that these things play, I invite you to consider auditing or enrolling in our Reformed worship class that we have every winter in January. It's a week-long intensive here in Taylor, South Carolina, with Dr. Pipa. It is uh, one of the best classes that the seminary offers, as reported by several of our alumni. So if you're interested at all in that, please reach out to the seminary. We'd be happy to give you more information on the Reformed Worship class that Dr. Piper teaches every January. Our next question comes from Brandon Burks of Dry Ridge, Kentucky. So Brandon asks this on divorce and remarriage. Paul speaks about remaining in the life situation you were in when God called you, 1 Corinthians 7:24. When God called you, if you were married, do not seek divorce, verse 27. If you were divorced, do not seek to be married. However, if you do get married, you have not sinned. Verse 28. Here's the question. If a person was divorced prior to coming to faith, that means the secular authorities slash government gave that release, but it says if they remarry, they do not sin. Does this mean that, biblically, remarriage is permissible, one, if the person was divorced due to sexual immorality, two, the person was abandoned by an unbelieving spouse, or three, if you were divorced prior to conversion, regardless of reason. Okay, uh, Brandon, now let me get this straight. I think you're saying if the person who has been divorced has been divorced due to these reasons, not the person seeking divorce. So, uh, so let's say in the first part, the person committed adultery and they were divorced. Second part, um, but then you kind of change the person abandoned by an unbelieving spouse. Now it's the Christian who's getting the divorce. Um, and then if you were divorced prior to conversion, regardless of the reason. So we've got two different parties here. In, in one and three, you've got, it seems to be what's called the innocent party. And in two, I mean, the, the guilty party. And in two, you seem to have what's called the innocent party. If I'm reading your question uh, correctly, it's a very important question. Let me just try to answer it more in terms of some principles. Um, first, the grounds uh, for biblical divorce are sexual immorality, which would be uh, more than, uh, I think, sexual intercourse. Uh, a person who was addicted to uh, pornography and, and went through counsel with the church and under church discipline and refused to uh, leave off of that. Uh, or a person who developed a very uh, personal, intimate relationship with a person outside their spouse, uh, and their affections were alienated to such a degree that uh, uh, they were basically denying uh, or denying conjugal rights to the person. So that's that's a broader issue. As is the abandonment. Now it's clear that if a uh, a, a new convert is abandoned by their spouse who's unconverted. That person is free to remarry. But the principle that's involved there is not conversion, non-conversion, but abandonment. I think it's very important. That's why our confession will go on to say that uh, desertion is, in fact, uh, grounds for divorce. And what does desertion mean? Well, in Exodus I think it's 21, we're told that a, a man owes his wife food, shelter, and conjugal rights. So abandonment would be the refusal to provide those things. So he might be living in the home and be a, uh, a drunk or a addict or a porno addict, 
and uh, he is not supporting the family or a gambler. Uh, he has endangered their very existence. He has no uh, regular loving conjugal relationship with his wife. Um, again, we only approach it to the church. We're talking about Christians now, professing Christians. He's dealt with by the elders. He continues to be impenitent. And if I were on the session, I would give the wife permission to divorce him because of desertion. If he beat her, that would come under the qualification of uh, desertion. So uh, I think those are the grounds of biblical uh, divorce. When such a poor person divorces or is divorced, they are free to remarry with the counsel of the session. It's not an autonomous decision because there's always other other things. There might be a lot of scars that need to be dealt with before a person married again or whatever. All right. So that's that's probably the neatest package. So let's say then that a person is wrongly divorced. No, one more. The guilty party in adultery. Um, if they properly repent, may they remarry. And it's funny, John Murray. He never. He just didn't want to come out and say yes, but he said I could not biblically say no. Proper repentance would mean not just confession, but going back to wife, any children that were involved, and uh, asking their forgiveness. Uh, it's granted. Uh, are they required to remarry? Uh, I know some biblical counselors say yes, I think no, or she maybe already has remarried. Uh, that person then is free to marry if he's been converted and he has made proper repentance and uh, reparation. Then there's the issue of the person who got an unbiblical divorce before he was he or she were converted. Um, conversion does not change the status. If they're unbiblically divorced, uh, they need to make again confession, forgiveness, if possible, to go back into the other marriage, uh, but otherwise to uh, uh, seek uh, re- reconciliation. And if those grounds were not there, I think they should remain single. Um, if the grounds were there, even though they were the guilty party, they could marry. Now, the non-Christian who gets an unbiblical divorce uh, and the spouse has, speaking of a man, the spouse has uh, remarried. This person is converted. Um, May he become a church officer? I was going to ask that as a follow-up. I think yes. When Paul talks about the husband of one wife, he's talking about polygamy. He was dealing with that in many of the cultures where he went, and there's places where I go today that the polygamy is, is practiced. And uh, a Christian man would not put away his wives if he were converted because he would have to care for them, but he could not be an office bearer in, in the church. So um, if a man's converted... Uh, he's remarried. He's not an ongoing adulterer. He still should make confession uh, to any of the people he offended in the past. If the congregation is aware uh, of his past and he has an exemplary marriage now, then I see no problem of his being office bearer in church. What if he's single? What if he remains single? He doesn't get remarried. Obviously, there's no problem as long as he's made proper repentance and confession. Okay, and he's tested accordingly for the other qualifications. Excellent. Well, our next question comes from Virginia Canuto of Recife, Brazil. It says, Dr. Piper, would like to know your opinion about the scripture passage on Exodus 1.19. And the midwives said unto Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are lively and are delivered ere the midwives come in unto them. Do you understand this passage is a lie? In what situation may a Christian react like the midwives? The verses 20 and 21 show us that God approved their acts, blessing them, giving... Uh, houses. There's two major interpretations of these passages within uh, Reformed interpretation. Uh, There are those like Professor Murray who would say that uh, any uh, deceit like this is a lie and should not be done, that we should trust the providence of God in in those situations. There's others like Dabney or Rush Dooney um, who uh, will say that it's not all... uh, not all lying is a violation of uh, the ninth commandment, uh, but uh, all uh, 
deceit uh, that uh, would not meet certain exceptions, and the parallel will be killing. So if the Sixth Commandment says, thou shalt not kill, it doesn't mean that you don't kill in self-defense, you don't, the state doesn't kill, they've been given the sword. So not all killing is murder. Now, it's all deceit, then lying. And the principle that they developed was that if a person has forfeited his right to life, he's forfeited his right to truth. So if they're acting in a way that if one was able to defend the life of those babies, for example, with a sword, um, and could do so, uh, they would do so. Uh, but since they weren't able to do that, they could protect life. And that's another way to look at it. You're protecting life. And I think when it comes to protecting life, then not all uh, deceit is forbidden by the Ninth Commandment. And we have a lot of biblical examples. Uh, and we have prophets uh, saying, uh, you know, agreeing when Zedekiah wanted Jeremiah to not tell the whole reason he was talking to him or when uh, Saul, uh, Samuel anointed uh, David, uh, military ambushes. Uh, there are a number of these uh, examples uh, in, uh, in Scripture. And I think they always uh, come about in, in the protection or vindication of life. So that's my position, that if the untruth is to defend life. So if, in fact, uh, some crazy guy came in my home and there's anybody else here and my wife was hiding under the bed or up in the attic and I said no, um, I would not be violating that commandment. If I had my gun beside me and he came in in a home invasion, I would, would willing have shot him. Uh, I would have that right to do so. In fact, I have a biblical responsibility to do so. So if you have the right to defend life uh, with a weapon, you have a right to defend life with uh, withholding of truth. Excellent question. Our pastor Virginia. doesn't believe that, though, Zach. I know that. Um, <laughs> in our presbytery, believe it or not, in Calvary Presbytery, there are disagreements over finer points of theology, such as this one, and, and a candidate was asked the question about Rahab and her uh, deceit or deception in hiding the Israelites' uh, spies, and um, the candidate said... Um, said that she was justified in doing that, um, that Rahab was justified in doing that, and uh, our, our pastor contended not, and another pastor in Presbytery said, oh, get out of here, and um, a little playful back and forth. I don't think any of it was mean-spirited, but I remember uh, smiling about that when I heard about it. Dr. Piper, we've had a number of listeners contact me wondering if you're going to address the recent Revoice conference at all. We've had a couple of other podcasts with Dr. Peter Jones and Josh Gilo, and also with Pastor Andrew Dion here locally on Revoice, and folks are wondering, what is your response? Yeah, we've had a number of questions about uh, the whole Revoice uh, conference in St. Louis and same-sex attraction, concupiscence, and gay Christianity. It's a bit more than we can get into right now. Uh, let me just say this much now. Maybe we can get some follow-up questions. Uh, Same-sex attraction is a sin. Um, it is a sin because Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that he has given uh, men and women over to perversion of uh, same-sex attraction to homosexual desires. Um, and... Thus, it is different from heterosexual attraction, which is part of our nature because God made us sexual creatures and fulfills that in the gift of sex in marriage. Uh, he did not make us uh, homosexual creatures. That's the consequence of the fall. So to be attracted to a man or a woman by the opposite um, sex is uh, proper as long as one doesn't lust. That's the difference between same-sex attraction and heterosexual attraction. Same-sex attraction in and of itself is a perversion. Concupiscence or concupiscence uh, is a Roman Catholic myth that says that we can have within us a certain basic lusts that are not sinful. But I can find that no place 
in Scripture. Uh, lust itself is sin. James makes that clear in James chapter 1. Gay Christianity, or I'm a gay Christian, that is also very specious. We do not define our Christianity with uh, sinful adjectives. I'm not an alcoholic Christian. I'm not a uh, fornicating Christian. I'm not a gay Christian. If I'm a Christian, I'm being delivered from all of these uh, besetting sins, and we never should define ourselves in any way but as the Bible does. And isn't that the great tragedy of the Revoice Conference? Yes, it is. And there's a number of attempts to uh, deal with that. Uh, we would encourage Presbyteries to ask the um, Presbytery where the host church is to investigate the issue. Uh, and uh, we cannot allow this public testimony to go on in our denomination, in my opinion. Well, on that note, I thank you all for tuning in. We had a number of live listeners, around 30 this time, which is more than usual. So thank you for tuning in. And for those of you who are listening to the recording, send us more questions. We have uh, we have four carried over from this episode that were uh, repeat um, repeat questioners, so to speak. But uh, we'll, we And be... we're back on monthly now, Lord willing, and yes. we'll probably do it the first Tuesday of each month at this time slot. Exactly. And tune in to gbts.edu or sermonaudio.com slash gpts or our Facebook, Twitter, Instagram pages for updates about the podcast. And if you don't get our emails yet, contact me. I'll add you to our email distribution list. Don't worry, I don't send too many of them, though some people might think I do, but it's no more than one or two a week at the very most, and with basic news and updates about the seminary. Please be praying for us again, as our instructors are teaching 21 course sections this semester, and we have 25 new first-year students. Most of our students from last year are continuing and doing very well, and when I say most, I mean like 95% of them. And uh, so things are very busy here at the seminary, and we truly do covet your prayers on our behalf. Thank you, Dr. Piper, for your time. It's Thank you, Zach. You've been listening to a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, please visit www.gpts.edu.